Afrika Zosa Afrika Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Shamu Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Sinzi, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lungwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... Cameroon's military frees 12 hostages. EU says the success of the Syria peace talks is crucial for the people of the war-torn country and for Europe. And severe drought threatens millions of lives in Somalia. In economics, Nigeria expects oil producers to agree to a supply freeze next month. And in sports news, South African Airways defends the sponsorship of Bafana Bafana. The first up the news with Onelin Tinsen. Thank you, Lulu. Niger's President Mohamedou Issoufou, re-elected for a second term during controversial elections last weekend, has proposed forming a national unity government with the opposition, which boycotted the vote. Issoufou won 92% of the vote in Sunday's election, which was marred by low turnout. His sole challenger, Hama Amadou, imprisoned since November on shadowy baby trafficking charges, was flown to France for medical treatment just days before the second round. The opposition had said it wouldn't recognize the Sunday poll results because of irregularities in the first round. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has sworn in 10 new ministers in a cabinet reshuffle. The government reshuffle comes just six months after al-Sisi inaugurated a new administration led by Prime Minister Sharif Ishmael following the resignation of the previous cabinet after corruption scandals. The shake-up also comes days after Egypt's central bank devalued the Egyptian pound as it faces an acute shortage of foreign currency inflows. International Criminal Court war crimes charges has confirmed 70 charges against notorious Lord's Resistance Army Commander Dominic Ugwen for crimes committed in Uganda. A former child soldier turned warlord, Ugwen was one-time deputy to Fugitive Chief Joseph Connie and one of the most senior commanders of the LRA. The LRA is accused of slaughtering more than 100,000 people and abducting 60,000 children in a bloody rebellion that began in 1986 against Uganda. Ugwen will be the first LRA member to face trial at the ICC, set up in 2002 to try the world's worst crimes. Connie remains on the run despite an intense manhunt backed by U.S. Special Forces. An ailing health sector and deteriorating humanitarian conditions are making life extremely risky for Libyans. UN Humanitarian Coordinator Ali Al-Zatari has given the verdict, saying the North African country has been embroiled in civil war between rival factions since 2014, leaving nearly 2.5 million people in need of assistance. Al-Zatari says access to civilians for UN agencies is not a problem, but funding for the international community is falling well short of the required amount. Access in, in, a, in a general way is not a problem, uh, except 
uh, for certain parts of Libya where uh, we know that there is insecurity and uh, risks that are beyond control. Uh, but funding uh, is definitely uh, a risk uh, because we, as of today, uh, only have less than 3% of the humanitarian response plan funded to the tune of about 4.5 million. Uh, what is coming to the rescue is uh, $12 million from the SERF that uh, will augment uh, the needs uh, that will probably enable us to uh, carry out operations until mid-year, until June. And finally, as the global community commemorates World TB Day, calls have been made for more investment and support for research and development towards a tuberculosis vaccine. Lois Shega is from the biotechnology company ARAS. It was announced just last year that as of 2014, uh, MTB had now surpassed HIV-AIDS as the legal, uh, le- leading single infectious agent causing death in the world. And considering this and uh, the spread of M- multi-drug-resistant and extensively drug-resistant TB, the stakes for developing a TB vaccine has, have never been higher. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelintzintzi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this March the 24th, the 84th day of 2016 with 282 days left in the year. Now, top story, Cameroon's military has freed 12 people held hostage by 30 suspected rebels on its border with the troubled Central African Republic. Two of the suspected rebels were killed and several military men wounded in the fighting that lasted 48 hours. Some of the rebels have escaped the cent- to the Central African Republic. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzega reports from Yaoundé. The governor of the Adamawa region of Cameroon says the 12 people, including children, were freed from captivity after Cameroon military launched an operation on its border with the Central African Republic. Kildadi Tageke Bukar says, unfortunately, some of the hostage takers escaped to the neighboring country. He says the assailants were quickly detected by the population and Cameroon military because they were dressed in foreign military uniforms, an indication many rebels and evildoers from foreign countries were still operating on Cameroonian territory. Among the freed hostages flown by Cameroon's military from the border zone to the Ngaoundere airport in Adamawa region is 47-year-old cattle rancher Mohamedou Jobdi, who says he spent two weeks in captivity after he was seized with his two children from his home at Ngawi. He says the day he was kidnapped, there was a loud knock on his door about 11 p.m. 
with voices threatening that if he refused to let them in, he and his family would be killed. He says when he opened the door, some masked people dressed in black and armed with guns ordered his household to follow them. Jabzi says while in captivity on the mountainous border zone, they were asked to pay ransoms of up to $10,000 each for their release. He says they were beaten each morning and fed with meat from stolen cattle. Colonel Asulai Blama, who led the operation to free the hostages, has called for civilians to report suspects and strange people in their localities. He says Cameroon's military is determined to fight the attackers, but the battle cannot be won without the participation of the general population. He says he is very thankful to the population, especially farmers and cattle ranchers, who collaborated by giving useful information to the military. He says without such collaboration, the armed men who operate on border localities should have retreated to the Central African Republic. Before 2014, CAR rebels were attacking Cameroon frequently to press for the release of Abdullahi Miskin and 10 anti-Balaka soldiers who were arrested in Cameroon in 2013. Cameroon and CAR negotiated the repatriation of Meskin to an undisclosed location and the attacks reduced. But since May 2015, Cameroon has been complaining that suspected CAR rebels were attacking its territory, kidnapping cattle ranchers and rich business persons and asking for ransoms. Cameroon shares a 900-kilometer-long boundary with the landlocked Central African Republic, and there are 300,000 CAR refugees in Cameroon. That report by Mugi Kinzaga. South Africa's Deputy President Sol Ramaphosa says the ANC has been moving from one scandal to another. Responding to questions at the ANC professionals in Santon, Ramaphosa admitted that it has been tough going for the organization. Dealing with the issue of state capture, Ramaphosa says the party is facing a defining moment. Angela Bulwana reports. Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa addressing a meeting of ANC professionals in Santon. The party has been struggling to recapture the black middle class vote and this is one of the issues it's addressing going towards this year's local government elections. The state capture issue is one of the issues that the middle class is concerned about and Ramaphosa was at pains to reassure the audience. It's going to be a defining moment when we will deal with this matter once and for all and stop those who may well have wanted to capture the ANC and an ANC-led government, we will stop you in your tracks. We will not allow this to happen, not in South Africa. Gauteng ANC chairperson Paul Mashatilo also reassured audiences that the ANC will never allow itself to be taken over by business. Mashatilo says there's no reason to doubt the NEC's plan to deal with this issue. We said, I think at some point, DP, if I'm correct, for two days we discussed only these issues. What do we do if people are complaining about the Guptas? We discussed it. 
because sometimes people think we brush these things aside. No. We discuss those issues we, very seriously. Uh, because at the end of the day, we want to build a country that has credibility. Ramaphosa says already people are streaming into the ANC offices to participate in the probe around state capture. The audience, mainly professionals and academics, also raised concerns they have with the party. Today I can tell the ANC, I'm not very happy with you, I'm angry, but I will still vote ANC. I'm glad that the ANC want to correct that wrong precedent by wanting to want to get facts on a matter that we believe that there are enough facts which the NEC will gather to ensure that those who do not uphold the core values of the ANC and high moral standard in society are not part of this ANC and they must go. Leadership, the African National Congress has been embroiled in scandal after scandal. What is your legacy? as our leadership. Following the tough question and answer session, Ramaphosa made some important concessions. Now this issue of scandals in the ANC, yes, we are right. We've been moving from scandal to scandal. We are a living organization. And it's an organization that is made up of human beings. The audience in the panel raised various concerns with the ANC, saying that they are not given space to participate at branch level. The ANC is having a hard time wooing the middle class, and this has put pressure on the party, as they are mainly in the metros. In Gauteng, opposition parties are gunning for Tswani, Ekurulene and Johannesburg, and they are reasonably confident they can wrestle these from the ANC. And that report by Angela Bulwana. Channel Africa is turning 50 this year. And to celebrate this milestone, Channel Africa invites you, our listeners, to send us anniversary messages. It's simple. Just call us on this number, plus 2783-913-3000, and follow the prompts to leave a short message. We would love to hear from you, and we are looking forward to hear your well wishes. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902 as well as 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 2011. Fighter jets hit aircraft and a crossroads military base deep inside Libya and NATO appears poised to assume command of the international operation that is working to thwart Muammar Gaddafi's forces by land, sea and air. And this was today in history in the year 2011. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-47-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma hopes many jobs in the health sector will be created in South Africa after co-chairing the first meeting of a new UN Commission on Global Health Employment. The President chaired the meeting in the French city of Lyon alongside French President François Hollande. The Commission aims to stimulate job growth in the health sector in developing countries. Our correspondent Dan Whitehead spoke to President Zuma and started by asking him about the key areas of the Commission. Well, this is a UN Commission established by the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to look at the question of the health. How could we employ more people through the health sector, given its size and its importance generally, and, 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 and the manner in which also uh, it relates and impacts to many other sectors as one way of tackling the unemployment kind of question. Uh, the, the feeling is that if we have a commission that could focus on it, we could, in fact, employ a lot of people. This isn't just about creating more healthcare jobs in developing nations. It's also uh, about increasing and stabilizing economies as well, and that the two can be intertwined. That's correct. That is the idea. But also try to prevent the <clears throat> health workers from the developing countries coming to mainly to the developed countries so that they can remain in their countries and therefore participate in terms of the work of <clears throat> the health in their own countries and also make the developed countries to be conscious and have ways of creating the jobs for their own people so that there will be no need for the people from developing countries to, 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 to flood the developed countries. So it's going to be working uh, for, for, for everybody, benefiting everybody in many ways, and changing, therefore, some of our policies and practices that we do that could disadvantage, particularly the developing countries. 
How much of an issue in South Africa is that of the so-called brain drain? Uh, people, healthcare workers being trained in developing nations and then going to work in developing uh, nations rather than staying back at home. Is that a big issue in South Africa? It is a big issue for all developing countries. I think uh, South Africa included that we might differ in percentage. Uh, <clears throat> one of the problems, as you say, we are almost like subsidizing uh, the developed countries. Uh, one of the problems is that we are busy saying, let us skill our, our, our labor force. Now, if you are skilling them, and as soon as they are skilled, they go away. It means you are almost trying to solve a problem that is like a mirage. And therefore, this is going to address the issue very definitely. This is a problem generally in the continent. It does affect uh, South Africa. You're co-chairing this UN commission with the French president, Francois Hollande. What is it like working with him? <laughs> well, it's very good. We are working with him very well. Uh, <clears throat> we know each other. We are co-chairing. We are not just co-chairing this. We are co-chairing also other things. Um, and, and, and also we belong to some other organizations together. So it is very pleasant to, to work with the president Hollande. That was South Africa's President Jacob Zuma ending that report with Dan Whitehead in Lyon, France. Let's go back in time to today in the year 2015. German wings flight 9525 and Airbus A320 crashed into the French Alps, killing all 150 people on board. Investigators say the jetliner was deliberately downed by the 27-year-old co-pilot Andreas Lubitz, who had a history of depression and mental illness. And that was today in history in the year 2015. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has broken his silence on his controversial relationship with the wealthy Gupta family, speaking with our correspondent Dan Whitehead in France after co-chairing the first meeting of a new UN Commission on Global Health Employment. President Zuma said the ANC is attending to the matter. Well, I doubt there will be an opposition that will praise the ruling party in the world. Their job is to critical. Their job is to try to find fault. In other places, of course, uh, it's good because other oppositions, they'll put an alternative policy. They don't just criticize forever without saying what else must be done. <clears throat> uh, part of the problem uh, of our opposition is that they just criticize, oppose anything without saying what is it that needs to be done by the country. What is it that they can do? Uh, <clears throat> so anything. Because if you talk about corruption, we, we, we have declared war against corruption as a party. Uh, we have established through government a number of structures and mechanisms to deal with corruption. And everybody knows people have been arrested. Um, <clears throat> resources have been recovered from some other people. We believe we are dealing with the question of corruption all the time. 
regarding the, the family we are talking about, there are allegations. There are indeed allegations. <clears throat> um, I'm not sure whether the allegations are saying they, they are corrupt. I don't think so. I think what people are talking about is they, 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 they are, as, as somebody talked, they talk to people and they say whatever they say. Uh, like all business people say a number of things to people in government, but with them there's a particular focus that, uh, which has been uh, <clears throat> given to them, which led to, uh, besides anything, the leadership of the ruling party discussing the matter. It was discussing the matter the last weekend. And it, it, it had met the family before that meeting, and it was also it discussed the matter and took the decision to meet them again. Uh, and therefore the matter is being attended to. And I'm sure at a given time they will also be in a position to put across uh, their own explanations to whatever has been done. And I'm sure we'll know what is the final kind of conclusion of those kind of issues. So you as president don't feel uh, any need at all to distance yourself from the family? No. That family has been closer to many people in the country. Uh, I don't think it has ever caused a problem. Of course, other people have got their views about it. <clears throat> uh, it's not a matter of uh, individuals taking a decision. I don't think you can just take decisions because there are allegations. Uh, the matter, as I say, is being discussed, is being handled in whatever way. They, will, they have been engaged. They will continue to be engaged, and I'm sure there will be conclusions about the perceptions of people that they have about the family. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma ending that report by Dan Whitehead in France. Indigenous women often lack knowledge to make an educated choice when it comes to female genital mutilation. That's the view of Valerie Kasayan from the non-governmental organization Indigenous Information Network in Kenya speaking on the margins of the 60th session of the UN Commission on the Status of Women. Valerie Kaya Sayan, who is a lawyer and also from an indigenous group, admits that a balance needs to be struck between respecting local cultures and empowering women, she explains. Empowering women is giving them the knowledge that they require in order for them to make a living for themselves and for them to find strength within themselves to exist as indigenous women and as women within the community without the oppression and without the mental, physical and emotional violence that is attached to gender in indigenous communities specifically because you must understand that in, within indigenous people we already face opposition from the government. We already are oppressed by the government but for indigenous women it's worse because not only are you oppressed by the government you're also oppressed by society. How is it possible for them to combine the respect for their own identity and culture and at the same time being empowered and freed from the oppression you are talking about? Well, of course, for indigenous women, they know nothing else other than their culture. So it is possible for them to combine um, both because look at the steps that indigenous peoples have taken in the past decade. The Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People came to being 
thanks to a majority of indigenous women. You can see that it is possible, even on international scale, for indigenous women to be able to maintain their identity, to be able to come to the UN in their traditional regalia, but to put forth ideas and to fight for their rights and for them to enforce their rights that have been granted to them first by the United Nations Charter as human beings and then now by the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People as indigenous women. You say that over the past decade things have changed for women? They've gained recognition. Is it the case in Kenya? How do you witness the changes happening? There has been changes in Kenya because since the promulgation of our new constitution, there has been more inclusion of women within the political sphere. There has been granted also more rights towards women within the constitution itself as under Chapter 4, which is the Bill of Rights. So you can see that we, we have come a long way because the constitution has become more inclusive, in, especially in my community in Kenya. And the government as well, which must be commended, has taken a more proactive role in ensuring that there is education of, of the girl child, um, perhaps by, by the basic education scheme for all in Kenya. And number two, by ensuring that it is fighting strongly against FGM. But I must mention as well that there are indigenous communities and there are indigenous women who actively want to undergo the female genital mutilation. And this is only because they lack the knowledge, because they know nothing else. So this is why us as young empowered indigenous women must help them look at life differently but still maintain their culture to show them that there's a better way, that you can still let go of destructive indigenous practices but still maintain your identities. You describe yourself as an empowered indigenous woman. Yes, what does it mean enough. for you to be an empowered indigenous woman? For me to be an empowered indigenous woman, first of all, means that I can read and write. And it also means that I have been fortunate enough to go through all stages of education. So I consider myself empowered because I have seen the world not from a traditional perspective and not from a local perspective, but from a global perspective. So I find this a great privilege and honor, and I will use this privilege and honor to empower those that are coming behind me. Still, you, you feel that being an indigenous woman in Kenya, to you, it's a strong asset for your country, for your society. How is it important to value the contribution of indigenous women in your society? Well, it's important for us to value the contribution of indigenous women within our society because of nothing else, because of the traditional knowledge that they hold. They hold knowledge to do with medicine. They hold knowledge to do with agriculture. They hold knowledge to do basically with survival because of, of the societies they've been living in. They have an advanced understanding of survival, even perhaps more advanced than us empowered women because they have been put through the fire, you know, they, they have learned through the fire. So I believe because of their traditional knowledge and because of what they bring to the table and their grace and dignity as Indigenous women, I believe that their recognition is, and I'm proud to be an Indigenous woman, it's such an honor for me. And that was Valerie Kaseyan, lawyer and member of the Indigenous Information Network in Kenya, speaking to Priscilla Lekom. Our headlines up next with Onelen Zinzi. Niger's President Mohamedou Issoufou proposes forming a national unity government with the opposition. United Nations envoy Martin Kobla is prevented from traveling to the Libyan capital Tripoli for his work on the installation of a new unity government. And today marks World TB Day. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Afrique, Afrique, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, du melang, san bonani. Africa, mulishani, mulibwanji. Africa, enyomi, kilon shele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to South to far west africa as well as dstv's audio bouquet channel 902 and now we'd like to hear from you our listeners feedback questions relating to our shows and uh, maybe information of on how we can improve our shows if there's a need please give us a call and leave us your message on plus two seven eight three nine one three three thousand. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good news for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-447-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. More children are at risk of being infected with tuberculosis globally due to a shortage of the BCG vaccine. BCG is the only vaccine available to protect against the disease. However, its shortage poses a major threat to the lives of many children exposed to the disease globally, including in South Africa. As the international community marks World TB Day today, pharmaceutical companies say they don't make a profit from producing the TB vaccine, hence the shortage. Tabilembele reports. 
According to the World Health Organization, over 4,000 people, including children, die globally from TB each day. Babies are immunized with the BCG vaccine at birth to protect them against TB, including the severe forms such as TB meningitis. Health authorities say it's difficult to diagnose TB in children as the symptoms are nonspecific. They include fever, cough, night sweats and loss of appetite, and these could be confused with many other illnesses. Dr. Yogan Pillay is from the National Health Department. One of the big challenges with TB in children generally, and this is across the world, is diagnosis. Because children don't cough up sputum, right? And largely we are using sputum to diagnose TB in children. So we are, you know, looking forward to a new diagnostic that will help children. Uh, The second, of course, not only with children, but generally, it's about completing your treatment. You know, you have to take your six months of treatment and take it every day. And if you do that, you can be cured. There's no question about it. The BCG vaccine provides between 60 and 80 percent protection against TB. But there are other challenges that can exacerbate the disease in children. Professor Helen Rees is the chairperson of the WHO's African Technical Advisory Group on Immunization. She says the shortage of BCG vaccines is not restricted to South Africa. Certainly between the government and the Medicines Control Council, when we are alerted to the fact that there's likely to be a shortage, then we work together to try and find an alternative source and to find ways that we can safely fast-track that vaccine into the system. So this is something that really does draw attention and that people pay a lot of priority to. But it's a global challenge. Thomas Cherian from the The WHO says they've been tracking the shortage of the BCG vaccine for a year now, but it will take years to address it. The short-term approaches are to try and see how we can minimize wastage, uh, redistributing the vaccine uh, so that there's no place where there's an overstock of vaccine, whereas other places have understock. As a last measure, redistribution according to the risk. Uh, of uh, of disease but in the longer term of course you need to increase the supply base and and uh, uh, increase the overall supply of pcg vaccination Louis Schreger from Eros, a global biotech company with a mission to develop new TB vaccines, explains why only small amounts of the vaccine are produced. The way it's grown is it's, it, it makes it harder to produce very high volumes. One of the things that's going into TB vaccine research is, you know, the potential for a BCG replacement with a candidate that will actually grow, be much more what we say scalable. It's, it can grow more easily and be produced in higher doses. And in South Africa, there's currently a study on the possible replacement of the BCG vaccine. However, it's not very attractive for manufacturers, as Thomas Skriba of the SATB Vaccine Initiative tells us. One of the issues has also been, and this, uh, this affects, of course, many products, not only vaccines but also drugs, is that it's not very profitable to make BCG. And so when that carries on for many, many years, it becomes an issue for manufacturers um, because it's not, it's not a profitable business. In South Africa, 10% of the 360,000 people undergoing TB treatment are babies and children. They also have to complete a six-month course to be cleared of the disease. Otherwise, they develop severe forms of TB such as multidrug-resistant TB and extremely drug-resistant TB. Tabilempele, Johannesburg. The Malaysian government has dispatched a team of investigators to Mossel Bay in South Africa to recover a piece of debris thought to belong to an airline which vanished two years ago. 
Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared on March the 8th in 2014 with 239 people on board while flying from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. A piece of debris was found by an archaeologist while holidaying in the Little Brack River on Monday. Spua Hubasi has more. The clue into one of aviation's most mysterious incidents, the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines flight MH370, may lie 9,000 kilometers southwest of where it's originally thought to have crashed. Pretoria-based archaeologist Nils Kruger stumbled on what could possibly be a clue to the ill-fated jet. We were walking along the beach on Monday afternoon, and um, being an archaeologist, I always have my um, my nose, you know, on the ground and my eyes on the ground, and you know, trying to to um, you know just look at at funny-looking things. And um, I saw this very peculiar-looking um, object um, on the on the waterline here by the lagoon, and um, I immediately uh, saw that this is something atypical. You know, this is not. Um, uh, ocean, ocean refuse. This is uh, definitely something different. A pilot friend told Kruger to contact the South African Civil Aviation Authority after he sent pictures of the debris. What convinced them was the Rolls-Royce logo, who are manufacturers of the plane's engine. I'm also quite a aviation enthusiast and um, I've seen previous pictures or pre, uh, pictures of previous finds um, of, of what is presumed to be this, this aircraft and um, I made a connection between um, this piece and that piece um, for example a, a honeycomb structure a honeycomb core interior structure in this structure that I also saw in those photographs um, so I flipped it around and I immediately noticed a, a Rolls Royce um, a manufacturer's sign on, on, this, on this fragment. The Malaysian government announced on Tuesday that it will send an investigation team to retrieve the fragment. Kruger hopes his discovery is not false alarm. I've been following this very closely for a very long time and I was always fascinated by the, the, um, the, the mystery around, uh, around the incident but at this moment you, know, you really have a, have a kind of a feeling of the human tragedy here and um, on that note I just have a, some, some, a sincere hope that this can, can really contribute to, to resolve or some kind of conclusion to this, to this mystery. Debris also washed up on the French island of Reunion and more recently in Mozambique. The Australian Transport Safety Bureau, which is leading search operations for MH370 in the Southern Indian Ocean, has also been in contact with Kruger. I'm Spiwe Wobasi in George. The United Nations says 60,000 children are facing death in Somalia due to lack of humanitarian aid from the international community. To make matters worse, the UN says almost 5 million people, half of Somalia's population, require assistance because of political instability and drought. James Mangula has more. The shocking huge number of people requiring urgent humanitarian assistance in Somalia was announced by Peter D. Clark. The United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator based in the Somali capital Mogadishu. The situation in Somalia is still dire. 4.7 million people in the country are in need of humanitarian aid and about 1 million people are in need of food aid. And out of those, about 360,000 are children, again 60,000 of whom are in risk of dying if no immediate assistance is given. So the situation is quite serious still, with a lot of displacement, new displacement taking place, a total of 1.1 million people internally displaced, and a million refugees abroad. Turning to drought which has been sweeping across Somalia for more than six months, 
Peter Clark, the Mogadishu-based United Nations humanitarian coordinator, had this to say. The drought situation has been quite serious this year as a result of the El Nino effect. We've also had major flooding uh, in the southern and central parts of Somalia. And we had additional displacement as a result of military offensives. We've had also an influx, both refugees and forced returnees, I should say, from Yemen. So the numbers are actually going up. We're looking increasingly at the underlying causes to some of these long-term humanitarian problems. For instance, for the 1.1 million internally displaced persons, we are embarking now on an initiative towards durable solutions whereby we address the underlying causes, such as land tenure, such as certain protection issues, urban poverty and urbanization. And we're working very closely with the government on this particular strategy. Alluding to the current political situation in Somalia, where its leaders are preparing to hold the presidential and parliamentary elections in September this year, the United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator for Somalia, Peter Clark, had good news for the international community, which has been supporting the Horn of Africa nation for more than 10 years. There's been significant progress in terms of the political process, as I was mentioning. The state-building process is on a very good course. Of course, it's not that easy because we're looking at for instance, federalization in a country that has never known a federal structure before. But these things are moving gradually in a positive direction. You see a strategic engagement by the government on some of the durable solutions, as I was mentioning, and that would not have been possible even three years ago. We are part of the New Deal process, which is very, very important because it basically locks in the international community and the government in a mutually accountability framework uh, that both work together towards progress and development. So these are things that are all on a good track. But the United Nations coordinator for Somalia decried insecurity, which has gripped the country following periodic attacks by Somalia's al-Shabaab militants. Unfortunately, that's not the same for some of the other issues like security situation. Somalia has a lot of potential. It's not a basket case. It's a country that can feed itself quite easily if we would invest seriously in, for instance, irrigated agriculture, livestock, and fisheries. And it has a very interesting position, of course, in terms of ports and serving the hinterland. So it could play a major economic role if security were to prevail. Somalis, as probably everybody knows, are very enterprising and very active people. You find them everywhere in the world and they're always doing business. So there's no doubt if the proper conditions could be put in place that the country could bounce back quite quickly. That was Peter Clark, the United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator for Somalia. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lahoko. Zimbabwe will, from the 1st of April, cancel licenses for foreign firms. Empowerment Minister Patrick Zuau says Zimbabwe had given foreign-owned firms a March 2016 deadline to submit plans on how to comply with a law requiring them to sell at least 51% shares to locals. The Indigenization and Economic Empowerment Act was passed in 2008 under President Robert Mugabe's Black Empowerment Drive, but implementation has been slow. 
South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says he hopes that many jobs in the health sector will be created in South Africa. He was speaking after co-chairing the first meeting of a new United Nations Commission on Global Health Empowerment. The South African president chaired the meeting in the French city of Lyon alongside President François Hollande. Zuma explains what the key areas of the commission are. Well, this is a UN commission established by the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to look at the question of the health. How could we employ more people through the health sector given its size and its importance and the manner in which also uh, it relates and impacts to many other sectors as one way of tackling the unemployment kind of question. The South African formal sector is struggling to create jobs. Data from Statistics South Africa shows that only 0.1% year-on-year were created in the fourth quarter of last year compared to the same period in 2014. The Employment Quarterly Survey, which excludes agricultural jobs, shows that jobs were created in the trade and business services in December last year. Trade reported an increase of 36,000 jobs, while business services recorded a 1.1% increase in jobs created. Endeavor Energy hopes to secure financing by the end of the year for a 900 million US dollar gas fired power project in Cote d'Ivoire. The Africa focused power producer, which is based in Houston, plans to operate a terminal that will import liquefied natural gas. Endeavor has approval to build the plant, which will initially produce 375 megawatts. The International Monetary Fund estimates that Tanzania's economy expanded by 7% last year. The IMF says inflation, which averaged 5.6% in 2015, is expected to decrease further in the coming months, remaining close to the authorities' medium-term target of 5%. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.27 in South Africa, 10.93 in Botswana, 11.29 now that's in Zambia, 7.0 British pound, 8.9 euro. Gold, $1,218, a platinum, $9,53 an ounce, brand crude oil, $40, cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, my name is Tabiso Lahoko. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Now, sports update this hour. We're kicking off with uh, football news. African football outsiders Sao Tome e Principe and Guinea Bissau achieved the Red Cup of Nations victories on Wednesday night as seven days of qualifying kicked off. A couple of late goals gave Sao Tome a dramatic 2 1 triumph over Libya, while Guinea Bissau spoiled the debut of Kenya coach Samuel Okumbi with a 1 0 win. New FIFA president Gianni Infantino saw South Sudan fall 2-1 at home to Benin while wasteful Zambia were held one all by Congo Brazzaville.
reigning Africa Base Cape Footballer of the Year Mbwana Samata was the match winner as Tanzania triumphed 1-0 in Chad. And the South African Airways has defended its sponsorship of Bafana Bafana arguing that this is a value in kind partnership. This was the reaction of South Africa's Airways chairperson Duduzile Mieni following a five-year deal partnership announcement between her company and SAFA that will see the national carrier flying Bafana and other national teams around the world. Announced just before Bafana depart for a crucial 2017 African Nations Cup qualifier in Cameroon on Thursday morning, Mieni is happy with this new partnership. It's part of marketing uh, the airline. Also, charity begins at home. Bafana Bafana belongs here, and therefore we have to support Bafana Bafana as well. It's our team, it's a national asset, we are also a national carrier, and therefore it is fitting for us to, to, to partner with the national um, football. And you know that um, soccer is loved by everyone, but also I can't say it's long overdue. I, I must say, we have sponsored it in the past. You remember in 1996, I even said in design in my speech when I was speaking during the signing ceremony, sponsorship, uh, uh, sponsorships come and go. You sign a contract for five years, it ends, and then you look at other areas where you want to invest, invest your, your, your money. But also the good thing here, we are talking value in kind. We are not talking cash sponsorship. And therefore, this is, is going to be good for the airline. And two-time Paralympic gold medalist Fanny van der Merwe says 2016 is his bonus year after a decade-long career that saw him win gold medals in the 100 meters T37 at the 2008 and 2012 Beijing and London Paralympic Games, respectively, and also won a gold in the 200 meters T37 in Beijing. Van der Merwe confirmed that would be his last season as a, an athlete after winning the 100 meters and 200 meters T37 at the ongoing NetBank National Championships for the physically disabled. I just, at the beginning of the year, said, you know, this is my last one, and it's just such a big opportunity for me, you know. Like, if I look back at my career, you know, I'm really privileged of being able to have two um, Paralympic Games. And, you know, just, just having the experience I had, you know, and with the training group that I had. So it was really blessed for me, and, and this is almost just like a bonus year for me, you know. Whatever happens, you know, I just want to go out and do my best and, yeah, I'll run free. Van der Merve has acknowledged that getting onto the podium in Rio will be a difficult feat to achieve as the sport has grown over the past four years and there will be new classifications. However, Van der Merve says he will leave nothing when he gets to the Games. I, I believe, you know, that, like I said, you know, anything can happen this year. You know, with the, with the guys, it's, it's, it's obviously going to be a, a tough competition, you know. The classes has, has just been getting stronger and stronger. But yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah like I said, you know, it's, it's just an opportunity for me to go, to give everything I have. And, you know, not, when I look back, not to have any regret because I knew, know that I, I gave it my best, you know. And yeah, and, and that's what, what I want to go do. Yeah. And finally, with tennis news, Novak Djokovic met with tennis legends Billie Jean King and Chris Evert on Wednesday in Miami to discuss gender equality and prize money distribution between male and female tennis players. The issue has caused a stir in the tennis world over the past few days, leading to several players publicly lashing out against Djokovic after he made comments last week about women's hormones 
and that men should be awarded larger prize purses. King, a founder of the Women's Tennis Association, told reporters money is important, but the message of equal rights is more important. And that's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Cameroon's military frees 12 hostages. Severe drought threatens millions of lives in Somalia and concerns over humanitarian situation in Yemen, city of Taiz. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagadza and Komuto Mopulane, technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277 now taking us to the top of an hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa is Sipoma Kabane with a song titled Zawa Indong. <laughs> Shaluma kelo nesiawa, sevele siawa, agesiawa. Hey, siawindo, siawa, indo masacheriko, siawindo, siawa, siawela de, siawindo, siawa, indo masacheriko, siawindo. I want to 